Magnus Podcast, episode 18. This is part three, the exciting conclusion of Love and Dominion with Dr. Patrick Downey. Okay, so hopefully some of the ideas discussed in this seminar thus far have been shocking to your system. That is the uh, that is the goal, and that is this uh, this metastrophic uh, consequence of education. Something should shock you, spark you, awaken you uh, up to reality. That's what it's all about. And so, uh, apologies, and you're welcome. Today, we're bringing you part three, the final installment of Love and Dominion with Dr. Patrick Downey. Uh, fun fact in that uh, we were taping this, and uh, we were, of course, taping with a small group of undergraduate volunteers studying at St. Mary's College, beautiful campus in Moraga, and a great, great books department in their integral program and a great philosophy department as well. Anyway, uh, as soon as this class wrapped, as soon as this taping wrapped, uh, we uh, all, all of the students and administrators at the college received notice that they had to uh, disband and never return for the foreseeable future uh, to in-person courses. So they all went home because of this uh, coronavirus scare. So uh, this is going to be it for Love and Dominion. We were hoping to bring you a few more courses, and hopefully we will down the road, but this is a great place to stop. We sort of started with uh, the the Genesis and the and the gospel narratives, and now uh, Downey's going to bring us into Kierkegaard. I'm going to link in the description to this text, The Thought Project by Soren Kierkegaard. It's, it's one of the few things I've read that's brought me to tears. If you've ever read it, you probably can identify something maybe worth rereading, uh, or reading for the first time if you've never read it, uh, either before, after, or during this podcast. Anyway, uh, I was taping this and just soaking it all up. Uh, beautiful uh, thoughts given by Dr. Downey and really impressed with the work of these young students in the class. And uh, it was difficult, but I bit my tongue through the whole thing. There's a few times I wanted to speak up. I didn't say anything to keep the authentic authentic character of this organic seminar alive. I didn't want to interject myself. But then toward the end, I decided what the heck, and um, I, I, I stated a few opinions and uh, had something of a throwdown with Dr. Patrick Downey. Throwdown! Of course, whenever uh, Downey and I have these throwdowns, we've had many over the years, and for some reason, I always lose. And so, of course, this time was no different, uh, but for my own humility, I decided to leave this in the recording anyway. So uh, hopefully that is enjoyable to you. If not, you can just skip the uh, the last few minutes of this podcast. And uh, before we get into the interview real quick here, don't forget to register for classes with the Albertus Magnus Institute Fellowship. You can apply now. It's completely free. MagnusInstitute.org slash fellowship. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts, freeing men who have been enslaved by a broken college system, women too, of course, and uh, that's what it's all about. So 
There is really no catch. It's all free and it's good stuff. So check it out at magnusinstitute.org slash fellowship apply today. Here's Love and Dominion, the third and final installment. Enjoy. Yeah. Well, before we get into Kierkegaard's philosophical fragments, let's summarize what we did with the Bible with the passage we didn't talk about last time, which is Ephesians 5, uh, which is has the sums up the whole love story of the Bible, and it's called the nuptial mystery. And this is where that, that term comes from in Ephesians 5. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so that's that's the mystery that is the neutral mystery, and that will be key to understanding Kierkegaard, because he's using that as the way to understand the relationship of distinction between philosophy and um, and the Christian faith and understand the Christian faith in terms of this love story. He, he gives a fairy story. It's going back to this husband and wife love story. So that's the passage to keep in mind as we turn to Kierkegaard. Okay, so uh, a lot's going on here, but we're not going to be focusing on the distinction between philosophy and faith so much, except as kind of a backdrop to what we're going to get in the later sections. So the first thing to deal with is the Socratic uh, did you get what he was up to with the Socratic? Uh, well, it's from, it's from the Mino, is really mm-hmm. what I understood it, and that uh, uh, Socrates explains the difficulty of how we learn things mm-hmm. by saying that it's recollection, because mm-hmm. the issue is that if you already know something, you, you can't learn it because you already know it, and if you don't know it, then... Um, you know, how do you even go about beginning to learn it? And so mm-hmm. um, Socrates solves that by saying that we have uh, eternal souls which just recollect knowledge. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to solve that issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and then the internal soul would mean that in one sense your come to know yourself is also to know God. To know God is to know yourself. So you, in one sense, you have the divine within you, so it's already there. You just have forgotten it. Yeah. So remember in the symposium, the, the erotic ascent to give birth in the vision of the beautiful? That means everything you can give birth to, immortality, is found in you. The baby's inside of you. All you need is some beautiful object outside of you to elicit uh, labor pangs, and then you will give birth to it, which means it's essentially recollection. Or, and to use Kierkegaard's term, that means you have the condition to know the truth inside of you. So you ha- that's to say you have the baby. So uh, this all sorts of different religions, you could say, all sorts of uh, Gnostic understandings all go back to the Socratic thing. Is Take the Gnostic story that 
there's the divine fire and the sparks fell down and got exiled in the world of matter. And what are you trying to do erotically? This is Marie de France, if you read her stories, the lays of Marie de France. What are all these weird adultery stories about? They're about adultery. Adulterous love is really a coded way of talking about your love affair with the divine spark within you. And so you're trying to marry that thing that seems to be alienated from you and return to it, and then you ascend back to the fire from which you came. So that's why it's adulterous, uh, because it's not the Christian marriage. So it's definitely contrasted with it. It's more of a form of what you're already seeing in uh, the symposium. It's what you see in Gnosticism. They're all variations of the same thing. They all have in common that you have the divine within you. It just appears that you don't. All you need to do is brush away Maya, the veil of illusion, those appearances, and then it's there all along. So that that's all you're doing. It, uh, it, it also, it's tied with uh, Aristophanes. You're divided. The wound of your nature is that you've been divided from the fire that you were, were a part of. So all you need to do is recollect that you're divided. It's an accident, and then you return back to the fire from which you came. So you can heal the wound of your nature by unifying, finding your other half, even if your other half is the divine spark. So all sorts of religions, Gnosticisms, cults, all have this in common. So in Kierkegaard, he's trying to make an algebraic argument, as he says. He's trying to just as precisely as possible make a fundamental distinction. And by laying out the Socratic, he's saying that is essentially all those things can be understood Socratically and all their variations, which means the teacher can't give you anything. Just the learner exists and he has God within. Uh, the moment at which you learn the truth is not a moment at all. It's just an accidental appearance and then it just fades away so time kind of fades away the eternal is all that's real time is an illusion so nothing important happens in time i thought the teacher could help you remember though kind of like be a tool to help you remember i know that, like you already have the baby mm -hmm. inside of you but yeah. they just kind of push you uh, they can it'd be like a midwife it's just, yeah oh, okay. so a midwife can't give birth to the baby all the midwife can do is maybe induce labor pangs okay. by uh poking at you or have burning incense, and suddenly you find yourself uh, going into labor. But that's that's an accidental relationship to to the mother and the baby, rather than an essential relationship. Yeah, so that would be like uh, giving birth in the vision of the beautiful. The beautiful wouldn't really be essential to the baby. It would just be that which elicits labor pangs. You see something beautiful and get agitated. Well, you're agitated not by the beautiful. In terms of you're going to possess it, like the beloved, the real beloved is the baby within. So you're in love with yourself, you could say, because you have God within. So that's the idea of the erotic ascent. You're in love with those babies, the immortal gods within. That's what you really want. So the, the move that Kierkegaard is making, going from like the pre-existent soul, um, and then changing that to be more of like God within you, that's yeah. the difference between the recollection of Socrates and, and Kierkegaard's yeah. understanding. They share that come because even in the Mino, when he talks about, the, he says soul, not your soul, but soul. And the soul knows everything. So it's essentially God. So, it's, so inside of you is soul, which is not Valente's soul, but soul. But your body is why you've forgotten that. It cuts you off from that. So you then have to leave behind the appearances of your particular body and return to soul within you, which is God. So everything in you that is eternal, that can know things, is the divine. Uh, but it's not you per se. That's, that's the veil of illusion.
Okay, so he's just rephrasing it. You're not actually saying anything. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing new here. Yeah. He's just trying to summarize all sorts of arguments and put them together in order to contrast them. That's the motto is, in your translation, it says, better well hung than ill wed. Better well hanged than ill wed. He's trying to keep you from marrying um, the Socratic with what he calls the thought project, which is the Christian faith. The main thing is to say, whatever the Christian faith is, it's not the Socratic. It's different in every front. And then that tells you something about it. Because if you understand exactly why it's different from the Socratic, you understand essentially what it is and what it's not. And then you realize it's radically different than anything you find in world religions. Every world religion is a variation of Socratic. Suddenly this religion is not. Why isn't it like the Socratic? What, what is different about it? Why is it fundamentally different? So to do that, he's got to lay out every aspect. That means then, okay, you don't have God within you. You may have been created that way in the image and likeness of God, but you've lost it. Okay, so you really lost the condition. And here he says, you, you're in error. So you really lost the condition, and it's a great pain to bring this out. It's not like you've pretended to lose it, and then you say, oh, I lost it. Oh, yeah, I've got to get it back. Because if you get it back, you didn't really lose it. It'd be like forgetting it. If you forgot the truth, you could always remember it. But here you've irrevocably lost the condition. You've lost God within. That's the equivalent of the fall. Okay, so if you've really fallen, there's no way you can unfall yourself. So you can't, so to speak, save yourself. You can't fall and save yourself. It's freedom. You've really freely sold yourself into bondage. If you've really sold yourself into bondage, there's no way you can then buy yourself out and redeem yourself from bondage because then you weren't really in bondage. It was just an illusion. So that was, that's the first thing, you've lost the condition. Uh, if you've lost the condition, then how can you come to know the truth? God would have to give you the condition, uh, and it would have to be God, because it would be, it'd be, have to be the one that gave it to you to begin with, who made you, would then have to remake you, basically make you come back from the dead. You'd have to be born again with a new condition. Who would that teacher be that could give you the condition? It couldn't be just a straight human being like Socrates relative to anybody else because they can only be an accidental relationship. It would have to be a teacher who would have to be God in time. He would have to be able to recreate the learner such that the learner could learn. And that's the only way that you could learn it if you really did lose it. So the teacher would have to be God himself, not just another accidental human being. And that would also mean in time, that moment would be a radically distinct moment from before you didn't exist in terms of you didn't have the condition you could know the truth and then at another point you could know the truth and it happened in time and then time is filled with the eternal so something eternally important happened in time whereas in the socratic nothing important happens in time time's just an illusion it's kind of empty there's just the eternal and then there's the illusion of time but you want to just get beyond that veil to what's really real in the thought project essentially the christian faith you really come into existence at a certain point. At one day you were dead, the next day you're alive and been, have been born again. The teacher's the one that did that, and now you've come back from your error and you can know the truth, but you're radically and totally dependent upon the teacher to know the truth. This is just the opposite of Socrates. Socrates, you make a fool of yourself, you fall in love with him like Alcibiades. He's not who you're in love with. You're in love with what Alcibiades has within, but he doesn't know it. So he thinks he's trying to seduce Socrates. There's nothing there. But here, with the teacher, God is teacher in time, everything hangs on the teacher to, 
to love what you've become because of the teachers, also to equally love the teacher. And it's to love the truth. They're all given to you by God as teacher in time. Can you explain under his section about the teacher? He talks about, um, I don't have page numbers on my phone. Mm -hmm. Um, But he says, if he could have lost the condition in such a way that the loss was not due to himself, and if he could remain in the state of deprivation without his own responsibility, it would follow that his earlier possession of the condition was accidental merely. Mm -hmm. How is it in what you're, I mean, in what you're describing, how can it be accidental? Like, where does Mm -hmm. that fit into? Yeah. Because I was a little confused how he makes that move from Mm -hmm. that is just accidental versus Mm -hmm. it was intentionally given. Does that make sense? Intentionally given or intentionally lost? Or intentionally lost. Yeah. Because if it's accidentally lost, it'd be something lower. But nothing lower can affect something higher. It'd be like somebody cuts off your leg and therefore you lose your eternal soul. Well, a lost leg can't affect your soul because they're higher and incommensurate. So it can't be a lower thing that can take it away from you. so it would have to be something that would have to be as essential as this, the thing you're losing. So you'd have to truly lose it, but it would be subject to you. You choose to lose it, and it's irrevocable. It couldn't be an illusion, nor could it be accidental. It would have to be a, a real distinctive choice where you are fully responsible for losing the condition. So that shows how important the condition is, but also shows how irrevocable it is. Whereas if you're just born accidentally, like in Socrates... Uh, yeah, you're born and you're going to live and die, but the eternal thing in you, your soul, that remains. And so you have it all along, and that's all that matters. So birth and death don't matter. But here, at one point in time, you died, and you did it to yourself, and you're responsible for that death. That's that's the loss of the condition. That So that's what you see in the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they made a choice. It was irrevocable. It had huge impacts. It wasn't like, oh, let's start all over again. Let's, you know, put the ball back inside the court. You can't change it. And so th- that then has to be the starting point. That's how drastic the situation is. You really can't do it on your own. That means you're radically dependent upon something totally outside of you to change it. Otherwise, you'd be dependent upon something you can do. So you can't even, you can't even say, oh, yeah, if I just say yes to this, I'll make it happen. Because then you always had the capacity to say yes to it. So even your capacity to say yes itself has to be given by the teacher. Caitlin's thinking about Mary with us. I am. Yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what were you thinking? I was mostly confused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I can kind of see what you're saying about Mary. About what Mary does is say yes to mm-hmm. the teacher completely. Mm-hmm. Like she she gives her her will totally to the mm-hmm. teacher when, I mean, in that she never sins, but also in that she uh, agrees to the teacher coming into her so that he can be a teacher in a, a physical way mm-hmm. to all of us, but I'm not sure if that's true. Yeah. She suggests to the teacher, who's also her son, who also gave her the immaculate quality, filled with, she's the one that gave her the grace that allowed her to say yes. But but remember, it's not just the teacher, but also the condition. Mm-hmm. So there's always two things when you learn something. You need something that tells you the truth, but you have to have the capacity to see it as true. So that's the conditions where all the action is. Because somebody can tell you this, that, or the other. A math teacher can tell you all the mathematical stuff, and you sat there, sit there slack-jawed in class, and you don't get anything. 
because you don't have the condition. You're not asking the question, so you can't figure out math. But if you ask the questions, now you have the condition, you can learn the math. And now the teacher can say things, and you can learn it because you bring the condition to the class. And so would it be said that all humans possess that condition mm-hmm. because they're made in the image and likeness of God, but Mary possesses it to a greater degree because she is without sin? No, every human being has lost the condition because they're made in the image and likeness of God. So they had the condition because they're made in that image. They lost it. They've all fallen. Uh, and so even Mary had to be made immaculate, freed from that original sin. So then she could say yes. So she's able to say yes, totally dependent upon her son. Her son made her capable of saying yes to her son. So he provided the condition for her to say yes. So then any other human saying yes to God later as the teacher to the truth, their capacity to say it comes from the teacher himself. So he's on the side of the learner and the teacher. And then relative to the truth, he has to give the student's ability, the learner's ability to know the truth. So everything, and, and then also the moment where that happens, because it happens in time. You learn the truth at some moment in time. It's not just returning the eternal. Before you didn't know the truth, you're cut off from it, and then now you know it. It's as big as a transition from to be or not to be. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and now you're alive. And you could say, on that day, I was coming back from the dead. I was born again. It's that crucial that the student has to be, be born again to know. Yeah, Tiffany? So that's how big the contrast is of the Socratic. Okay, this is all just in preparation for the love and marriage part. Okay, so this is, and this is not easy to get. But now, so how does he try to explain this further? It's in chapter 2 where he says, okay, well, an essay of the imagination. Okay, what, what are you trying to do here? He says, well, imagine the relationship of the teacher to the learner. If, if this is what the teacher has to do, the learner, here's the problem, is he's got to somehow raise the learner up in such a way that the learner realizes completely and totally dependent upon the teacher, but is not crushed under the burden of that. Because he wants to raise the learner up to the level of the teacher, but he wants to do this out of love. We saw that before, just the idea of God creating the world. He only creates the world out of love. He doesn't need to. It's just an overflow he has no motivation by anything outside. It's just he desires to create. Likewise, if he were to recreate the learner, he could only do that out of love. And But if, he, if he's doing it out of love, this is the, the thought of the king here, that only a king could comprehend that unhappy passion here. You, you, you seek the learner out of love. You're trying to raise the learner up to know the truth out of love. They're totally dependent upon you. But because... You love the learner. You want the learner to be equal with you, in the sense to truly join with you, and not just be like a maid that says, oh, you're a king, you're beautiful, just shine in my hut and I'll be happy because I'm nothing and you're everything. So I, don't wanna, I can't imagine being equal with you. I'm happy to be nothing. Well, no, I'm going to raise you up. But you've got to really raise up the maiden, not in terms of the appearances, because love wants the connection to be quality. Because the lover, God, wants to marry his beloved. And to marry his beloved, the beloved can't be just in subservient, nobody position. She's got to be raised up to the level of the lover. So you, re- you have the unity of lover and beloved, that they join together. And so that's then this fairy tale. How can that happen? Only the king could understand this passion of the worry. The example he gives is um, the lilies of the field. 
Behold, the lilies of the field, they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not attired as one of these. Well, if that lily thought that it could uh, be seen as beautiful by God because it was so beautiful, then it would feel that God has to look at it and say, oh, that's a beautiful lily of the field. And then it's dependent upon its beauty to be seen as beautiful. And then it would wilt under the pressure of manifesting its beauty. Whereas if it thinks it's loved, and that's why it's beautiful, then it has to see it's loved first. And then, because it's loved first, it is beautiful. In other words, you can't earn the love. Because if you earn the love, then you always have the burden of being loved upon your shoulders. So, likewise, in the, this marriage relationship, to really have equality of lover and beloved, the, 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 the beloved would have to feel, I am loved first just because of who I am. And then the beauty flows from being loved first, rather than I'm beautiful earning that love. Because if you had to earn the love, you provide the condition for being loved. You make yourself lovable. You do that yourself, but nobody can handle that burden relative to God as the lover. So the beloved has to believe they really are beloved no matter what, that God, the lover, conditions their love rather than themselves. And so the lover has to persuade the beloved that they are loved rather than having earned it, providing the condition for their being loved. So that's the challenge of the king, that how can he, he falls in love with this maiden, how can he come together, get her to say yes to his marriage proposal, uh, and truly say yes on the terms that he's given it to her. That's the, that's the love story. So how can it happen? The two options, or it can happen by an ascent. You can raise the beloved from her hut, bring her to the courts, and suddenly she's with all the royalty. She's given a fine set of clothes, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the king's queen. But it's based upon an illusion because she she's got outward appearances, but not the reality of it. So it can't be done by a, a, a ascent of the beloved. So the way it has to be done is the lover has to descend to the maiden's hut. And he's got to dwell with her at her level and make his suit to her, his court to her at her level. And only if she says yes by him descending into her hut, then she can say yes without, being it, without it having been based upon an illusion. And so that's then the love story. That's the, the, the king, the greatest king in the universe has descended into this bare little hut. He becomes a servant. He takes upon himself all the sufferings that the maiden bear truly, not just in appearance. He can't appear to be like a god that appears to be a beggar, but it's really a god. He's got to really be a beggar. He's got to really be a servant. And that's how he's got to show his love. And if she accepts his love at that level, she will be truly being accepting his love. And she'll know first that she is loved. And then she can be raised back up, then and only then, because she knows she's first loved at the level that's based on reality. And then she can be loved in the splendor because she said yes to the courtship at the, at the, um, uh, her lower level, the lowest of the level. So the king has to go to the lowest level to pay court to all the maidens of whatever level. And then they can rise up to his level. Well, I was thinking, is that why Jesus became incarnate in a manger as opposed to like in a castle? Because I guess you would say that mm-hmm. that, that there's no real uh, essential difference between like a poor human and a king in relation to God. Mm-hmm. But perhaps he, he became a human in a manger as opposed to in a castle in order to show some sort of symbolism for us that he mm-hmm. came not only for mm-hmm. kings but for mm-hmm. everyone. 
Yeah, but it's more than symbolism because he, he really is loving the poorest of the poor. That, of course, is going to include the king because the king is really poor. He just doesn't know it. If you're poor, you're more likely to know it. And so the, so the challenge is you are a poor, uh, beloved a woman. Well, why would a king ever love me? I'm ugly. I'm poor. There's no reason to be loved. But if he can convince you, no, I love you at your ugliest, at your poorest, at your least, then if you can be convinced of that, then, of course, anybody else can be convinced as well. Because then that's the true love. I love you when you have nothing lovable in you, but I love you nevertheless. So, so, so then nobody's offering, I can't offer glory, riches, or anything to God to earn God's love. It's totally unearned, gratuitous. So his gratuitous love, that's what one has to be convinced of for the love story to commence, is that it's absolutely gratuitous. But that's to say, I absolutely do love you no matter what. There's nothing you can earn it to get rid of it. Nothing you can earn or be penalized to get rid of it. I will love you no matter what. And that's then, that. and if they come together at that level, then you have the real marriage, what he means between equals, because then each one is saying, I just want you, and I love you as you are not with conditions. So it's unconditional love. And then he could give you the condition to become more worthy of it, but he's already loved you before you're worthy of it. So that's the story of the maiden and the, the king. And it's, of course, it's just a retelling of the biblical story the, in the manger and being humble, Christ being a servant of all. all, all he's trying to algebraically put together the whole Christian thing in terms of this story of the, the maiden and the king. So that makes sense when you guys read it? Yeah, why is it that the love of like lover and beloved uh, wants the equality of the two to come together? Mm-hmm. Like, why is that necessary for the nature of love? Because it's, it's going to be a marriage love, which means... You're gonna you're gonna love the other person not just as the beloved as other beauty drew you in. It will be when you have that kind of friendship, but it'll be in one sense prior to friendship. It'll be the affirmation that you see. With we mentioned that in the first day, the love you have for your kids. Your kid may be a rotter, uh, no good, etc. But you love them just because they are, and you want the best for them, no matter how far they fall, because you you're affirming the love for them and their existence. They are, and you love them because they are. Uh, and so then a husband and wife would want to love each other in that same way. That's what you're saying in the vows. No matter what you do, for better, worse, richer, or poor, sickness or in health, I promise I will love you. Well, what are you promising? You'll, you'll promise you will love them as they are uh, unconditionally. You're not going to need them to be conditioned by how beautiful you are, how rich you are, how whatever. And so that's even more the case with God loving humanity because they not only can't earn the conditions, they've lost the condition to be loved. So he's going to love them when they seem to be empty of everything. They're, they're worse than having nothing. They are in a deficit mode and a deficit they can't make up on their own. They're dead. So he's, he's going to love them while they're dead and through that love he's going to bring them back from the dead. So this then becomes the teacher that the student can't learn a damn thing. He doesn't have the condition to learn anything. The teacher is going to do anything to give the condition to that uh, student so then the student can learn everything. But the student can't learn anything until it first realizes that it has to get the condition from the teacher. So it's got to do two movements. First realize it has nothing to offer, but nevertheless I'm loved. And then, and then anything that comes from that is given to me through that love. 
So then everything you, when the maiden's raised up to, back to the king, being raised up is founded upon being loved when she has nothing. So everything she has is a gift and doesn't add to her being more lovable. She was loved when she had nothing. So then it's all gift upon gift upon gift. Nothing is earned at all. There's no, you never earn anything the way the beloved earns something from the lover. Here, humanity is the beloved, but God loves humanity as the beloved when we're actually ugly. Whereas humans love the beloved as beautiful, but God treats us as the beloved. We have nothing to offer God whatsoever. So then he will make us the beloved by first loving us when we're not the beautiful beloved. I think I think it's good too with equal relationships, especially when you think about God being the teacher, just because you know, I automatically think of God being as something higher, you know, divine figure. And so like for mm-hmm. the learner then to be equal, the teacher is awkward for me to think that. In the sense of when God comes in the picture, that's awkward just mm-hmm. because I don't see him as an equal. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that is kind of a problem. Yeah. Because then you say, well, yeah, God, you do your God thing, but you don't have to do it. Just ignore me. I'm nothing. But then you say, no, I love you. Well, don't love me. I mean, you're God. Just do your God thing. Don't love me. Just leave me alone. It's almost tormenting that he loves you because you've got to allow yourself to be loved. That's, that's the passion, the unhappy passion that arises in the heart of only a king. He could, could see the suffering is that the beloved may not want to be loved by him. He's got to convince that beloved to allow herself to be loved. And she may not be able to summon it up. No, 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 you don't love me. That's just do, do whatever. Because that, then you would have to say yes to that love. Yes, I'll allow you to, you to love me. Yeah. And that's then the passion. The passion is him. Literally, so the passion of Christ, the love story of Christ's passion on the cross, is he's passionately trying to court his beloved. And so at the moment of the cross, he's dying to try to win her hand. So is she going to give him her hand? She said, oh, don't, don't die for me, Jesus. Like Peter said, no, no, Christ, you're not going to go to Jerusalem be killed. That's ridiculous. You don't let that happen. They, and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter's offended at the idea that he, he's going to have to do this to allow her to be loved. He, Peter doesn't want to be loved in that fashion. I'll be loved as though I have something, but I won't be loved when I have absolutely nothing and I'm not lovable. And he's saying, that's the only way you can be loved, Peter, when you have nothing and you're totally dependent upon me. And, and so, he, so then he pays court with the cross. That's his passionate act of love. Now the passion of belief unhappy, you either believe or you don't believe, but you have to believe, did God really love me in that act of the cross, or did he not love me? That's your belief or not. That's your hap- your own unhappier, happy passion. If you happily believe it, then you go, oh, wow, uh, I, he did this to love me, and if I say yes to his court, to his hand, then I come back from the dead, and now we get the resurrection. I'm happily married to God himself that he really loves me, and now I'm united, I'm married to him. And that's the happy passion. The unhappy passion, you say, oh, no, no, I'll, I'll do this on my own. I'll figure out how to get deal with my stuff, and that means you get out of it, or I have it on my own. And the unhappy passion is you just can't get yourself to say yes. This guy said, ask you for his your hand in marriage? Eh, I don't know. No. But because who asked for your hand in marriage because you said no to him your whole life, you're unhappily obsessed with who you said no to. Because you said no to the one thing where you could be totally loved. But now you, you'll only say yes based on conditions. But you wouldn't say yes to the person that wanted to marry you unconditionally. 
But now that means you're always going to be unhappy because you're conditioning every other suitor. And that means you're not really marrying them because it's up to you. And if it's up to you, you didn't marry them. You have to really marry somebody. We'll get to this in a second. This is the sums it all up, ties into the marriage and uh, bigger things, is that you have to be willing to throw yourself and totally trust the person asking you. The person that asked you for his hand, it now means that your happiness is dependent upon this guy, if you're a girl. He may be a liar, he may be a cheat, or he may be the best thing that ever happened to you. If you say yes, it's a great marriage, but then he could be lying and it's, it's miserable. You trusted the wrong person. And yet you want to be dependent upon somebody. Because if, you if you're not dependent on the guy, you didn't marry a guy, you married yourself. He's just somebody you made a contract with and you use him for your benefit, so you never really married him. You never really threw yourself onto this person's uh, love. You kept your own self-love intact and you trusted in yourself. Well, then you never had a marriage. You were in control. There's no passion. Passion is to lose control. So this is the, then the passion on the part of the beloved is do they dare throw themselves in the arms of the, the lover. But was it a differentiation between the passage you read at the beginning of the class from the Bible where it talks about loving one's self as loving your uh, spouse? Yeah. But then you'd say, like, oh, like if they like married someone for the love of themselves, mm -hmm. I yeah. think then they love themselves. Yeah, yes. so, so the husband loves his wife as he loves his own body. Mm -hmm. So, so we, that's good. Good point. So, so loving your own body, we'll see, is self love. Of course, you take care of your body spontaneously. Okay, but then you you're told husbands love your uh, wives the way you love your own body. Now that's more of a challenge because just as you spontaneously affirm by nature your own body with a marriage, you want to love your wife's body as though it's your own, which is harder to do because it's not your own. You're likely to think your own body is more important than her body. But you've got to love her body as much, if not more, as your own body. Well, that turns out that so if a husband loved his uh, wife's body the way he loves his own body, that, what, th that would signify as the way that God loves our bodies the way he loves his own body. What do you see on the cross? His body suffers, dies. The passionate death of his body is for the body of Christ, which is his bride, that he lays down his life for the wife of his, his uh, for his body, his wife's body. And so men are told there to be willing to sacrifice their body for the sake of their wife's body because Christ laid down his body for his wife, the church. So that's the challenge of the man. The man, the lover, has to be willing to take care of somebody else's body more than he takes care of his own body. But the starting point is that you do spontaneously take care of your body. Now notice this is on the part of the man, less so than the woman. Uh, she, she's so, so now what's a woman... She's in the position she wants to take care of her body spontaneously by nature, okay? But if she says yes to a man in marriage, suddenly her body is radically dependent upon this man. Can I trust this man to take care of my body the way I take care of my own body? Because I can take care of my body. I'm in control of that. But if suddenly my, my body is totally dependent on some other person, above all a guy, that's too dangerous. That's not safe. I don't want to trust my body to anybody else. Thank you very much. I'll just stick to my body. You can have your body, but your body won't take care of my body. Well, then you don't have a marriage. I see many implications here for the feminist movement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And, and body is the big thing here. Evelyn, too. 
Okay, well, so let's go to that passage. We'll be talking about activity. Yeah. Might not be relevant, but how would something like that end up being the beast where like, the role in the world is Yeah, I think that is kind of the same thing, that he's got to allow himself to be loved by her, uh, that he gets rid of being the beast. Uh, and then, of course, the question is, why does Belle love the beast? So that in that sense, they reverse the role. She becomes kind of the lover. Why should you love the beast? He's the beast. And is it because he brings out that he's so lovable? If that's the case, you don't quite have the love story. Because then she really loves that knight that's inside of him. But we know the knight's kind of an asshole. So he's not lovable at all. That's why he's really a beast. So what you're dealing with, this is what makes it a larger story, is, is he has to be transformed. He's got to come back from the dead to become this knight that is also a lovable knight. So her love is going to redeem him to, make, to allow him to come back from the dead. But that's, then she becomes the mediator of Christ's love. So that's what you see in, uh, like, Sophie uh, in... Uh, Dostoevsky's, uh, I think that's her name, in uh, Crime and Punishment. You you have all these prostitutes that love the characters that are fallen in uh, Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment. But the woman's love uh, redeems the man. So he learns about God's love for him through this woman's selfless love for this guy. And so it really isn't the woman's love. The woman is reminding him the way God loves him that he's not worthy of love. She seems to not have anything, but she really is bigger than herself because she's a lover. So her love leads to him responding to God, and that's the true passion. And she just reminds him of Christ's love for himself. So it's like he flips the role. So the beast would, Bell's love for him makes him realize he's got to be loved by God and to be transformed. And that, so the love comes first and then the transformation. The love gives him the condition. Yeah, yeah, because that yeah she because she kind of loves the beast for no good reason, right? Yeah. yeah. And but that's what unconditional love is because if it's conditioned, then you're in one sense they already are worth your love, uh, but then your love is just a response to something that's already there, so it doesn't have that supernatural quality. That's the sacramental marriage is this bigger thing, of that love is transformative rather than just a response to reality because then it would be friendship or something like that. So the love story is the transformative of the love, where the teacher transforms the learner. Likewise, the lover transforms the beloved and makes the beloved lovable through first loving them. Well, let's go to this passage I've been summarizing. There's a lot of stuff we'll be skipping, but this is a thing that's most pertinent to your psychological life. Um, yeah, it's at the end of the absolute paradox. Where was it? Yeah, at the end, of, right before the uh, appendix. Okay, yeah. Um, page 59 in my book, right before the appendix that has, it's called the acoustic illusion. Okay, so he says, uh, so he's dealing with two things reason relative to the paradox. 
And so he says, reason in his paradoxical passion precisely desires its own downfall. But this is what the paradox also desires, and thus they are at bottom linked to understanding. But this understanding is present only in the moment of passion. Okay, that's kind of summarizes something that we're not really getting into, but that thought thinks that which can't be thought. That would be where your reach for God, you cannot grasp it, but you still reach beyond what you can grasp. That's the paradox. That's the unthinkable, but you go to that level. Okay, but that if God comes to you, if God loves you, then he is saying that, well, you can get what you're reaching for, but you've got to take it not as a result of your reach, but as a gift. But to, but to receive it as a gift, you have to realize, well, I've got to somehow give up my reach and now just receive. But you just want to reach because you can reach on your own, but receiving you can't do on your own. So this is kind of a, the technical philosophical backdrop of what he's getting at. But then he brings it back down to love. By He says, consider the analogy presented by love, though it is not a perfect one. So it's not exactly the same, but it's close. Self-love lies at the ground of love. So the self-love is love of your body. Everybody starts with self-love. They want to love their own body. Spontaneous. Health, etc. It lies at the ground of love. But the paradoxical passion of self-love, when at its highest pitch, wills precisely its own downfall. This is also what love desires, so that these two are linked in mutual understanding in the passion of the moment. This passion is love. Okay, so... What does it mean for self-love to will its own downfall? You want to take care of yourself. You love yourself. Unfortunately, to love yourself, you realize, you can't help but realize, the only way I can really satisfy myself, be happy, would be actually if somebody loves me. You just That's why you spontaneously go towards love of somebody else loving you. But the problem is, that's why it's a paradoxical passion, Self-love reaches out to love, but then if it were to get what it wants, it loses the very thing that it has, self-love. Because suddenly yourself's not loving yourself. You can love yourself, you have that. But if self-love wants to be loved by another, it also means the downfall of the self. Because it's something you cannot supply on your own. Only the other, the lover, can supply you with his love. So you don't know for sure that lover will love you. So self-love is in control, it has mastery over it, but it goes beyond what it has mastery over to what it has no control over. But it can only be satisfied it has that, but it runs this huge risk. All it knows for sure is it will lose itself. So all love means to self-love is the loss of self-love. That's the only thing it knows for sure on its own naturally, you could say. But there's this, it can't, it's reaching out for it, so maybe if that love is real, the only way it can get what it wants is a gift from the lover. But that's also its downfall. So it's torn. That's the paradoxical passion. It's this downfall, but maybe it's the only way to get what it wants. But to get what it wants means this downfall. And then you're totally dependent upon that lover to really get what you want. So the question is, why would you run the risk? So that, so this is the, my standard image in class, and everybody's dealing with this one or the other. Okay, you fall in love with somebody. The minute you fall in love with somebody, oh, I'll never be happy unless somehow I get the person I'm in love with. But then you go, oh, shit. Do I trust that person? Because now my happiness is dependent upon the person I'm in love with. Before I fell in love with them, my happiness is dependent upon me. I could get that. That makes sense. But still, to be happy, I can't imagine being happy unless I'm in love with somebody. But the minute you're in love with somebody, now you seem to, all you know for sure is you may lose your happiness because they could totally make or break your happiness. It's up to them and not you. 
So why should you run the risk? Maybe you should just play it safe and not fall in love with anybody. Because if you fall in love, it literally is a fall. You fall off the cliff of your self-love, that platform you had, you're falling. And all you know for sure, if nobody catches you, you're hitting the ground and you're losing your self-love. So why jump off the cliff into somebody's arms? So why is happiness like the second part of that equation? Why isn't <laughs> happiness like, why can't you know that that person will make you happier, be the source of your happiness, and then <laughs> fall in love? Uh, because you didn't fall in love if you knew that. Then they're just an extension of you taking care of yourself. So think of the, mar- the idea of marriage as a contract. Okay, we're just two consumers trying to maximize our goods and services. And I think we, hey, we'll make a good team if we join forces and we contract together. Uh, and so as long as we work together, we can achieve our self-love. If things don't work out, we'll break the contract because, you know, you're not helping me get what I want anymore. Well, so that means you, you contracted with them, which is an extension of self-love. You're just in there for your profit motive. Um, but the problem is you've never really run the risk of loving them. Because you can make a contract, you can always pull out of it because self-love remains. They're an extension of your self-love. You never lost yourself. You have complete mastery over it. Couldn't you just continue a relationship then with just God? Because you know mm-hmm. God won't let you down. So you know that like you can jump off the cliff and God will catch you. So then you can like continue happy. Like you mm-hmm. know yeah. that He won't break you. So you can just maintain your relationship with God and be happy. But but the, but this is really what we're talking about. So this the relationship of falling in love with somebody is nothing compared to the risk of falling in love with God. Because can you really trust Him? God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the risk. If you knew you could trust Him, oh yeah, I know I can trust God. That means you have God within you. And oh, I know everything about God. I know exactly what to do. But because faith is the relationship you have to God, faith is something you don't know. It's the evidence of things unseen. You don't know for sure God loves you. Maybe the story's all bunk. Maybe it's just yeah, just some strange whatever, and maybe uh, he loves other people, but he doesn't really love me because he knows a few things about me, and I don't know if he'd really love me. So all those things make you heavily doubt that God may truly love you. You can't take it for granted. If you took it for granted, you probably don't think he really loves you. Or you think you have the condition, oh, if he should love me, I deserve it. Well, you're deluded. Or you're in a Socratic world where God really is within you. Or you're just, oh, you're like a maiden, you know, who's been put on a, a, a fine dress. And you think, oh, God's going to love me. Look at this dress I have on. Well, if God loves you because of the dress you got on, you're not really loved. Because there's no way you could earn God's love. So that's the idea of works righteousness. The idea that I'm such a good boy or girl, of course God's going to love me and take me up with him to heaven because I'm such a good boy and girl. Well, <laughs> that God doesn't love you because you're such a good boy and girl because he knows exactly how far you are from him. You don't. You're deluded. So that, that'll actually get in the way of you him, allowing him to love you as you think you are lovable. You're like the, 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 the flower thinking that it's loved because of his beauty rather than it's just loved as it is. But to, to, to believe you're loved as you are is, means you've got to jump into God's arms. You've got to believe. You've got to totally bank your whole life and happiness on God loving you Sight unseen. That's the risk of faith. That's the passion of faith. That's the happy passion of faith. That would be you jump into the arms of God the way in the analogy you jump in the arms of someone to ask you to marry them. Uh, it's a risk either way. But this is the bigger, higher gains, the risk of God. But you're presupposing that risk will then fund the other risk. Well, this is the bigger risk, jumping in the arms of God. I assumed everyone just trusts that. <laughs> no, yeah, that's not the, you can't assume I mean, that at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
Okay, so let me just clarify. So, like, let's mm-hmm. say you do trust mm-hmm. that person. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You then give up your self love, or. Uh, yeah. Let, let's finish reading that. Yeah, okay. that's exactly how it ends then. He says, Such is then the passion of love. Self love is indeed submerged, but not annihilated. It is taken captive and becomes love's spoiler opima, spoils a war, but may again come to life, and this is love's temptation. So also the paradox in relation to reason. So this means, yeah, you give up your self-love, and then if the person catches you, then they give your love back to you as a gift. Yeah, so it's, that's the idea of your body. You die to your body, taking care of your body, you die, but then God gives you your body back to you as a gift. He who seeks to gain his life will lose it, but he who gives up his life will receive it from God. So likewise in this thing, you've got to give up your self-love to get it back as a gift from the, from the lover. Could, it, could you also give it back as a gift if you didn't have self-love in the first place? Well, in one sense, not having self-love is a way of having self-love, right? I mean, I mean you know this in plenty of relationships. Somebody's insecure, uh, I just couldn't marry you because, you know, I'd feel kind of I'm ugly or I got this past thing or whatever. And so I really couldn't say yes to you because you're insecure. So you want to allow yourself to be loved by the lover. Well, that's a form of self-love. So even though you're beating yourself up, it's the self-obsession. You're hanging on tightly as you beat yourself up. Because you are, you are the one praising yourself or insulting yourself, but I'm going to do it to myself. But... Yeah, and so this is a classic case. You know, you, the, the husband says his wife is beautiful. She says, oh, no, I'm not. I'm overweight. I got blah, blah, blah. And he said, just let me love you. Let me tell you how beautiful you are. You don't tell yourself. That's the beauty of a husband being your mirror. You can look in the mirror on your own. That's self-love. But if your husband becomes your mirror, he's the one that tells you you're beautiful. And then you're beautiful. Why consult anyone else? And so then you become beautiful through the eyes of the lover, the husband, rather than beautiful on your own. Because if you're beautiful on your own, you can never share it with anybody. But if you're beautiful that through their eyes, the beauty becomes a shared reality that you are beautiful truly. Because what do you want to be beautiful for except in somebody else's eyes? That's the paradox of self-love. It cannot help but want to be. You self-love, you look in the mirror and make yourself beautiful. But why do you want to be beautiful? You want someone to look at you and say you're beautiful. And so you run a risk because if you just don't, if you dress up and you never let anybody see you, you're defeating the very thing that you wanted to do. You wanted to be beautiful in somebody else's eyes. But then the minute somebody else's eyes, you're dependent upon that person because what if they say, no, you're ugly? Then you lost all that effort. And so all that effort is dependent upon its fruition, not on you, but on the eyes of somebody else. That's the risk of love. In that quote you read, though, it says... Um, self-love may again come to life. Yeah. What's a contingent on, though? Uh, That would be on the part of the beloved here, in this case, the wife. The wife can suddenly say, you know, like this, this situation, I used to think he totally loved me, and I was beautiful in his eyes, but now I'm not so sure. I I don't think I'm beautiful anymore. And so then you start obsessing about your lack of beauty on your own. So you brought it back, and now you judge yourself rather than giving your judgment over to your husband. So it's there, it can come back to life, because you want to have it on your own. Whereas you should always have it as a gift from the lover. And so then you relate to all reality in life as a gift, but 
to come back and just take it as a right, as a possession. And that can always come back. So you can then say, I want to live according to the flesh, use biblical terms. You should walk according to the Spirit, which is totally a gift given by God, by the lover. He gives you the lightness. He gives you the freedom to do all these things. It's always through Him. But you say, no, I'd like to do things on my own. I want to have control. That's scary anymore. I don't want to depend on the Spirit. I want to walk according to the flesh. Well, that is for the flesh to come back to life again. It would be your spiritual trial and temptation. And then you're undermining the marriage. You're being faithless. But he's still faithful, and so he remains faithful, waiting for his bride to come back and return to her fidelity. That's Hosea and Gomer. But Gomer becomes faithless insofar as she lets this thing that she gave up come back. She wants to have it as a possession again, as rather than a gift. Now, notice that's different from a contract. A contract, you never really do this. You just are deciding how to take care of oneself, and you dissolve it. So you don't. So that's not a temptation. It's just a calculation. But marriage, you can be faithless because what is infidelity in marriage? It's this thing coming out that you should have given up. So it's undermining the thing. But then it can also be brought back to where it is by the fidelity of one spouse or the other. Because the, the marriage is a thing that makes you, you are what you are, your husband and wife, rather than Sally and Bob that have these definite qualities that they're contracting how to get mutual advantage from. You are man and wife, and that's the thing that you are. So as you're always the wife, you're always the beloved wife. Husband, you're always the lover. So these roles are bigger than you are. But that's because the thing that gives those roles is God has become the lover for humanity. So everything that humans do, they are just partaking in, in their own individual way with this fundamental love that God has. That's the real love story. And marriage is doing the same thing. And then human, when they, why are humans so obsessed with falling in love? Because falling in love is like training wheels for uh, being loved by God. You practice with other human beings, but what you're really practicing for is your love affair with God, not your love affair, your marriage with God. That's the high stakes that you're involved with. And that's then faith. That's a, that. That's the real passion. So your human passions are training for the real passion, which is embodying Christ's passion on the cross. That's the real passion. You want that to be the happy passion, the Good Friday. There's, it could be Bad Friday, but it's Good Friday to you, good passion, because you are living out of the resurrection, out of that death. Or it could be just bad again if you fall away from your faith, but then you've got to be called back to it. But that marriage becomes your biggest reality. And marriage replays it. I was going to ask earlier, but I guess it's relevant now still. Um, how are we defining passion? I mean, what, yeah. what are we passion be the, the Passion be the lover. So think when we go back to to symposium, the lover walks around barefoot, kind of in a daze. He follows the beloved everywhere. He bumps into things because he's suffering his love for the beloved like a wound. Think of a Sappho. The serpent that strikes you, bit love, bittersweet. It's like a poison that goes through all your limbs. That that suffering is the falling in love. So think of the passion of falling. When you passionately fall, you're not actively doing it. It happens to you. So a lover falls in love. Uh, you're being acted upon. Um, so that's, that's what I mean by passion. So likewise, when it comes to the passion of the desire to know the truth, you want to know the truth because the truth is there to be known, and the beauty of the truth is why you passionately seek it. It's affecting you. 
you're not the agent, you are the patient of the activity of reality. The unmoved mover is the action, pure act. You are the patient seeking that in your desire to know, the passion of knowing it. But it turns out, ironically, you can only satisfy your passion, your paradoxical passion to know that which, to think that which cannot be thought. Your passion can only be satisfied by God's activity of loving you, and then he passionately loves you back. So he, so to speak, falls in love with that world he creates. So much so that he will passionately die for uh, the world he created. He doesn't have to the way we are responsive. He actively becomes passionate. He chooses to passionately love the beloved. But in it, but in that, in that mm-hmm. example that you just gave, isn't the person mm-hmm. that I guess ends up being the beloved at first has to be the lover? Uh, that, that would be, but that's like self-love. Yeah, yeah. You start with self-love, and if you hadn't fallen, that would be fine because that would be with God as well. But because you've fallen, your self-love can it seeks God, but it also can't get it on its own. There's no way it can possibly get it. So that's why it has to be responsive to God loving you. If you hadn't fallen, it'd be a different story because then you'd be walking with God in the garden and in the clear of the day, speaking to God face to face. So then you wouldn't really need this passionate relationship because you wouldn't have had that loss you'd be together all the time yeah so you guys are quiet over here this is just girl talk i was talking about passion and love yeah. one thing that i'm thinking about is um if marriage is uh, if marriage is a practice between uh, or like a practice for your love of god mm-hmm. and in a marriage you're trying to like emulate the love that god um, has for humanity. You're trying to uh, love somebody because they are. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me, that just seems almost like just doomed. It's like to doom for failure. Uh-huh. Because yeah. how can you choose someone for marriage, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. just love them for who they are? Like, what was the whole point of choosing them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you, yeah, you, well, you Christ, right? Uh, yeah, marries everyone. Yeah, but if you're in a mm-hmm. if you're in a committed relationship with one person, how can you love mm-hmm. them for who you are if you Chose them specifically. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's so that so courtship. When you're thinking about all these things, but that notice that's just an extension of though you're making a contract in self love. You're calculating who will I get along with best and who can I trust. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Okay, but that would be leading finally to a contract. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ink the contract and sign it. Okay, and then if you don't fulfill your conditions, well, the thing's void because you didn't fulfill your part of the contract. But but that's not what you're doing. You you are taking those things into account, but you know when you finally then marry them, all bets are off. That's the nature of the vows. Because the vows aren't just the culmination of your calculation about how you're going to get along after you get married. You now are married willy-nilly. And, and willy-nilly, that's where you're, so to speak, you've fallen off the cliff, and now you're totally dependent upon them catching you. Are they going to treat me as... The husband, I'm gonna. I promise to love them as my wife. They promise to love me as husband. They may not fulfill their vow. Uh, you're dependent upon that, but you. But your job is to fulfill your vow. That's what you. That's what you promise to do is to fulfill your vow. Again, otherwise it'd be a contract. It also seems relatively close to an irrational love of one's own. It seems like if you're in a marriage mm-hmm. with somebody, you can easily say that you love them because they're your wife. They're your husband. Yeah, you you could, but that's why it's the irrational love of one's own. This is the rational love of one's own. So the rational love of one's own is you love them because they are intrinsically lovable. What makes it a rational love of one's own? They're your own because God gave them to you. 
you rationally love your country, you could just love it because you're happen to born here, but if you rationally love it, you've got to go through the source of reason, and that because this is my country is given to me. And things that are given, I fundamentally love them through God. And then it's a shareable love. So when you rationally love somebody, if you rationally love your wife, you're not cut off from all other wives in the world. It's not adultery, but there's a way you're sharing with every everybody else's wife. That's the marriage of Christ in one sense. You have shared women and children in common that Plato's talking about. Because in the body of Christ, where finally there's no giving or taking a marriage, everybody's married to Christ. All these wives are shared. All these children are shared. That's the rational love that you're aiming for in a Christian marriage, sacramental marriage. Because irrational loves are unshareable. Rational loves are shareable. So when you marry sacramentally somebody, that marriage doesn't cut you off from every other, anyone else. It actually joins you to them. That's why the witnesses at a wedding, everybody shows at the wedding, they're all partaking in this, and in the sense of partaking of a common shared body. They're part of that marriage. Rather than being, this is my private family, my blood, my private marriage, and you guys are somebody else. They are all doing it because of the third thing, Christ's marriage to all of humanity. So that's the main passion. That's the main marriage. And then a rational marriage has to be subordinated to that marriage. And so that's why that's the big risk, and then the smaller risk of marriage can be born that passion of marriage can be born because of the larger passion of Christ's marriage to us. Otherwise, it's just too much. I mean, who, who would dare it? That's why we turn it into contracts, because we're frightened to run such a risk. Um, perhaps I'm missing it, or I'm getting too caught up in the metaphor, but mm -hmm. when... You know, the, the teacher or the God like lowers themselves so mm -hmm. that uh, you so that you may love them and it's it's an equal love. Doesn't I mean the whole thing ends up lesser then because I thought you know by doing that I, I'm missing how that then leads to the ascent or the the greater thing. It, it would mm -hmm. just seem to make you know both people lower mm -hmm. uh, because it is a king. So when a king becomes truly becomes a servant and they consummate the marriage in the maiden's hut. Then, once they're married, the king ascends to where he comes from, and she truly is his bride, because she truly married him, and she truly said yes to her as a peasant. He really paid court to her as a peasant, so now they're married as a peasant, and he's become a servant. But he's also then a king, too. So now when he ascends to his kingdom, he really is married to her truly. She's not just a little peasant that he put a fancy dress on and jewels. She really has, now she's the bride of the king. And now she's a queen. So it's it's the fact that the, the higher thing like mm -hmm. truly becomes mm -hmm. lower. Yeah. Um, and you can't really do that the other way around where the lower mm -hmm. thing truly becomes higher. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah if, you, if the lower raise, it would be an illusion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, the how does how does the higher thing return to you know, being a king? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. after loving himself. Yeah. Uh, well, that that's the, the that's the paradoxical story of the gospels. Is the God of the universe becomes a slave to all. He. He becomes a servant. He born in a stable. He dies on the cross, and yet they ironically crown him king of the Jews, 
well, he really is king of the Jews, and yet he doesn't appear to be a king. He's got a crown of thorns. He's bleeding. People mock him. But that's where he consummates the marriage on the cross, and he really is a king all along, but he appears to be just the opposite. But if you then marry him on the cross, if you say, yes, this is my redemption, I believe him. This is I'm totally dependent upon his love, and I say yes to him, then uh, he will. you will be raised with him, and you will... Well, you see this in the New Jerusalem. When New Jerusalem comes down as a bride adorned for her husband, he is going to be the king in the center of the city. He is going to be the lamb that was slain. He's going to be the husband. All three things are united. Then you'll have genuine uh, royalty. And then he will be the king in all his glory. But you can only be part of the New Jerusalem if you married him in outside the walls of the Old Jerusalem as a criminal and as a blasphemer. So that, that's where you have to believe before you could ever get the New Jerusalem. If you wanted to have the New Jerusalem straight without going through the actual passion, you wouldn't be able to get it. But that, but that, is, but that shows exactly how glory, glorious he is. This is a true king. So what's a true king? The true king will lay down his life the way a husband, a true husband, will lay down his life for his bride. That's the sign of genuine royalty. Humans are deluded because they think genuine royalty is just self-love. But real love is loving, is to be a lover. As Aristotle even says, it's better to be a lover than the beloved. Well, God shows himself to be the ultimate lover in the passion. At the moment of passion, then you see God's being a lover. If he is a true king, he'd just be the beloved. But then we would be greater than God because we'd be his lovers. And loving would be better than being the beloved. But God shows he's greater than us by becoming a lover. But then he joins with us in his love. Yeah. Good stuff with Dr. Patrick Downey. And now you have been warned. This is the epilogical throwdown. Can I ask a question? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the Socratic mm-hmm. in Philosophical Fragments, it's been a while since I've read it, but I always remembered the role of the Socratic. Well, I, I remember there actually being a role of the Socratic, mm-hmm. not just an accidental, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, pointing out that these are different things, mm-hmm. but the Socratic had this role of, um, like an apophatic role, like to realize that you, mm-hmm. like Socrates, you don't know anything. And I was trying to find a text where I was mm-hmm. remembering that from real quickly, but I, I couldn't find it. So, Mm-hmm. Is it, don't you have to have the Socratic to know that you are the maiden, the maiden in the hut? Uh, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Because the, the Socratic would be just, the, it would be self-love. So the Socratic is self-love. But no, notice self-love can't mount you up to, uh, to the, the, you're thinking that which can't be thought. Your reach exceeds your grasp. Yeah, but doesn't the Socratic know that? Isn't, isn't with that self-love the realization he, that the reach... Yeah, but there's still an infinite gap between that and faith. But the Socratic realizes that that's the yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so the equivalent of that in, in here is that the only thing you can do on your own is recollect that you're in error. Yeah, that's, that's the yeah, but, that, but But now Socrates doesn't know he's recollecting he's in error. Well, that's what Socrates does, though. I mean, he that's, does, why, no, that's but why he does, he's the wisest man in Athens, because he knows that he doesn't know. Well, but he also knows that. So he has all knowledge in that knowing he doesn't know. He wonders, and so he has all possible answers contained. That's the idea. He has the condition within him. So that's the question: is to have the condition Socratically. So Socrates has the condition because he doesn't know. Yeah, because to know you don't know is to wonder, and then all 
everything you know will be an answer to that question. So you have the condition to know everything because you can ask about everything. Don't we need that? Like we need John the Baptist? No, no, it's different. It's, it's, it's a self-denial, right? I am not. No, no, you're mixing the two. Now you're trying to wed these two. I think they're wedded. Yeah, <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem. You're trying to wed the two. Yeah. Because then you're, you really aren't a sinner. You just uh, kind of deluded. You realize, oh, it's you're apophatic. Really That's why you need a forerunner to, to baptize you in this knowledge that you are not. No, no, but, but 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 you, if you're really a sinner, John the Baptist can realize you're a, you baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But he says, because that is the that's the closest thing to Socratic, but it's not Socratic because he's pointing ahead to the to Christ. Socrates doesn't point ahead to Christ. He's not John the Baptist. Well, he's pointing ahead, but in the darkness of a womb. You can't see what he's pointing ahead to. Same but, with Socrates. He knows he's, he's not, not it. But he's, not, but he's not pointing at anything but himself because he has it within him. Oh, but he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going somewhere. Well, but the, the soul is not Socrates' soul. He has no interest in his soul. His individual self is nothing to Socrates. That's, but to a Christian, it's everything. That's why he's so excellent. But that's why our Lord says of John the Baptist, there's no man greater born of a woman. Oh, no, that'd be a John, 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 yeah, but John the Baptist is not Socrates. Yeah. But John the Baptist, well, John the Baptist is is mm -hmm. to Jerusalem as Socrates is to Athens. John the Baptist prepares a city of faith like Socrates prepares a city of reason. And that's there's no, there's no preparation. There's no, there's no temporal. There's no, time means nothing to Socrates. Time is an illusion. Time is accidental. That's why the moment is so qualitatively different than the Socratic. The day you meet Socrates, that well, you just reminded me of what I had all along. Nothing important. He, only Alcibiades thinks it's an important thing. He's missing the point. That's a joke in Alcibiades. He thinks Socrates' body, his time, means something. It means nothing. It's all an illusion. There's just the eternal knowledge. But the day you encounter John the Baptist in time, this is the day. This is the fullness of time. That's what he's pointing to in time. He who comes after me is greater than I. So it's all based upon time. That's why the moment is so key. Yeah, and Socrates can't know that. But that's why he says where I'm going and it, and when he's about to die, he says, I don't know what's going to happen next mm -hmm. because it might, might be great. It might, it might not. Who cares? Yeah, but, well, that's, yeah, you do. Who but, cares? Yeah. That's the thing. He can't know. He can't care. That's, yeah, well, that's, he's, that's, but that's why the apophasis is so important and uh, so critical because you can't know until you realize you don't know. Oh, but but, but that, that means you can that means you can know in Socrates the slave boy finally solves that mathematical problem comes to know it that knowledge is eternal knowledge. That's mathematics. That's, that's well, that's an easy case. Yes, yeah, that's, that's where it's that, easy. That's what you can know. That's mathematics. No, no, but the, the say reality itself is he says the soul and the mino knows everything, hmm. and you have all that you just forgot it. So you have all knowledge just in the form of forgetfulness. So that means you have God within you. The soul is divine. It knows everything. You just forgot it. And all you need to do is get yourself to try to remember that is to wonder about it. So to know you don't know. And the slave boy knows, oh, I don't know how to solve this. Now he's on his way. Socrates, he knows he doesn't know everything. He wants to know everything, but he knows he doesn't know it. But that's worth knowing. He now has the condition to know everything. So that's Socratic, but it sure ain't Christian. Mm, yeah, but Socrates knows more than the slave boy. That's why he's his teacher and the best Socrates. But, but Socrates has nothing to teach the slave boy. That's the point. He has nothing to teach and he knows it. And that's yeah, why yeah. he's so wise because yeah. he knows he doesn't know. But you need yeah. that sort of that sort of negative knowledge mm -hmm. to actually know. No, you don't know because then it would condition faith. Knowledge can't condition faith. Death conditions faith. faith. That's why you need to get baptized to have it. But it's Christ's death. Your death won't get you anywhere unless you die with Christ. Right. 
So your that's, death just means you're dead. Yeah. It means nothing if Socrates is right. It's just an illusion. You thought you're alive, you're kind of dead. All that remains <laughs> is what's eternally true in nature. Your body means nothing. Yeah. So your birth means nothing, your death means nothing. All that matters is what's eternally true, and that's the truth and reality. And you come to know that in time, but that's an illusion. All along, all that really exists is the eternal. And it's eternally true. Thank you. Not giving Socrates enough credit. <laughs> You're just trying to baptize him, turn him into a Christian saint. <laughs> he's not a Christian saint. <laughs> he's a philosopher. Jill Sun says he's a Christian saint. Yeah, well, they're not being very careful. That's why Kierkegaard's so precise. He's getting to the heart of the matter. And you just what and as he says, why would you mix this incredible love story and just say, oh yeah, you're just really doing this natural I think thing? Does it better than anybody? But that's why I always read this thought project as needing the Socratic to begin the story. No, you, it, it, he he, he, he has one moment of the Socratic, which is the recollection of error. But as he says, the recollection of error will do you no good. It doesn't get you any further to realize you don't don't know. And Socrates gets you somewhere because now you're on your way. But to realize you're an error, you just realize I can't do anything about it. it to know you're fundamentally in the untruth means you realize I'm blind. If you realize you're blind, you don't get new eyes. You're just blind. You can't see. That, I'm deaf. That's the point. Christ says the blind shall see. That's, it, be, that's because he's Christ that can bring eyes back from the dead and ears. Socrates he, can't do that. It's not just that he can bring eyes back to, to see. It's that there's something that truly sees more in mm -hmm. the person who is blind. No, no. Then blind people would have an advantage of seeing. They do. They do not. <laughs> blind people are freaking blind. It's like you said. <laughs> you're, you're just basically saying they appear to be blind, but you they're really not. It, you said it earlier in the lecture. The king mm -hmm. himself is poor. Mm -hmm. But the, poor, the actual poor person has the advantage because he knows he's Only poor. because the king the loves the poor. The Only person. because the king loves the poor. The poor on their own. And the king, same king, turns out loves the blind. <laughs> you're just getting rid of sin. So the price you pay for bringing Socrates and baptize him is you don't have real sin. Sin is an illusion. You really aren't dead in your stresses of sin. You appear to be dead, but you really have the capacity to overcome your death, which means you have the condition to bring your eyes and ears and body back from the dead. So you really only apparently died and were blind and deaf and uh, but you just got to realize it, and then all along you could see. Well, you're really blind, but it's the more you realize it, that's the more. <laughs> that you means see. you have the condition to get rid of your blindness, which means you're not really blind. You shut your eyes. You have I can't condition. see. I can't see. You do have open your eyes. Oh, I can. Well, that means you weren't blind. But if you're blind, you can open I, your eyes no, all you then, want, and you can't Socrates see. Socrates would be able to give himself knowledge beyond apophatic knowledge. He still knows he doesn't know, but he knows it. it's darkness. It's a, it's a splendid darkness because no, but, but he, he knows it. He, but he does know he knows, so he has knowledge. Yeah. yeah okay. But, but, if, but if you're dead in your stress and sin, you don't have any isn't, knowledge. Isn't that the best a human could do apart from mm. grace is knowing you don't know? Well, but it's infinitely far from what you need. It is infinitely far from what you need. Okay, well, that's it's right. really infinitely. But so <laughs> so it, it's a gap, and so you can say, well, I can build a little bridge. But... No, Further, and Socrates no, I, has that kind of bridge. Well, the problem with Socrates, you go as far as you want. You ain't getting across clear, that bridge. That's the point, is that Socrates is the first guy who realizes he's not getting across the no, bridge. No, that's, you why, that's why it's so important. No, the whole thing he of the... He realizes he's, he's blind. You're making Socrates a saint and a, uh, uh, a no, Jew. He's neither. I'm not making him a saint, but this is exactly why St. Thomas says the Oracle of Delphi mm. could have been divinely inspired, because mm. she does say something true about Socrates, and she knows this in a way that she couldn't... Well, that, but, the, but it's true in the sense that you can say also, sorts of things true about your self-love. But your self-love added up. 
quantify it, it'll get you nowhere. And Socrates is the first guy to admit that. No, but every, this Which is not, it's it, a big deal. No, he's not. You see the same thing in Indian religions. You see it in all forms of things. The whole idea of Maya and that you have this divine within, these are all just forms of that. No, because they're trying they're trying to port uh, to to basically act as if they mm -hmm. can uh, become something other than nothing. No, that's what what, what it turns do you turns out to be nothing. What do you say in Eastern religions? Uh, Brahman is Brahman and Brahman is No, and you also say neti neti, not this, not that. Neti neti. But that's not the same. Why do you say neti you neti? Because it's nothing, nothing, nothing. Just like Socrates, I know, I don't know. That's not how John of the Cross says nothing, nothing. It's a very different nothing, nothing. Really I know. Socrates. So I think, in other words, John, you're making a mistake. If you conflate Socrates with apophanic theology, you're going to lose Christian theology. And you're going to get Gnosticism, one form or the other. This is where heresies come from on this fundamental level. That's a, that's a huge accusation. That's why this is so important. And it's not just this Shabara. This is all these guys are Bart. All the major theologians are saying, yeah, that's the thing you got to realize. You can't mount up because God comes to you. I don't know if that's helping you to, to pin that on. <laughs> well, uh, a lot of Catholics are reading Bart saying, yeah, we need to Isn't it true about. that God comes to us best in our emptiness? That's done to me. It's called yeah, sin. It's not our emptiness. The Lord. Well, it's not sin when Our Lady says it. She realizes her emptiness, and that precisely is what prepares the way for him to enter. So then she saves the world, Mary. And frankly, it's not sin when John the Baptist says it either. When he says, I am not. Are you a prophet? No. Yeah, Are you yeah. one of us to come? I am not. Threefold denial begins John the Baptist's testimony. And he's not He's not actually sinning. He's actually free of actual sin. Oh, he he's is. Okay. Original sin. Oh, so he, he had original sin? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's oh, preserved. That's quite, that's quite a concession. I, mean, I, thought yeah, it was good. <laughs> I thought the whole point of your argument is to say there's some people that don't have no, original sin. The whole sin. point is that our Lord dwells best in emptiness, and there has to be this historic... So then emptiness is a condition. If I could just get empty. Well, the forerunner, Let's become a Buddhist. The They're really good at being empty. The forerunner prepares the way. Like you, you, you have to admit that. John the Baptist prepares the way for Christ. He, he prepares the way, but as he says... I am not worthy to unlatch a sandal because you can prepare the way till you, the cows come home and you're not one step closer unless the way comes to you. Yet in Providence, he's still there. Yeah, I know, but everything comes from the teacher. So you're denigrating the teacher by exalting all these people. I'm not exalting. The, the teacher's everything. John the Baptist has nothing to say. Don't listen to me. Look into him. I can listen to him. Listen to no, him. That's not at all what I'm saying, but I am exalting him in the sense that Christ is saying no man is born of a woman who's greater than John the Baptist. That is by your natural powers alone, the best you can do is realize that you are not. Yeah, and it and still won't do you any good unless the, he comes out well, actually, the, by your natural powers alone, the best you can know is that you don't know. So the Oracle of Delphi yeah, says this. But it still doesn't qualitatively get you one step closer to faith. It, it, it gets you... That's right. You want to turn it into a condition. I agree. No, You're turning it into a condition. Get well, that's all that matters. To faith. But it that's all that matters. This it doesn't prepare. The emptiness prepares the way to receive something that's real. No, the, it, uh, John the Baptist can prepare because he is the whole Old Testament. Because everything he says has been there prophesied. Like said, Socrates is not a prophet. He, he's, he doesn't need to be a prophet because he's not dealing in the realm of... Jerusalem. He's not. He's dealing in the realm. Yeah, of and Athens. you don't have prophecy in Athens. That's the point. So yeah. you can't be a prophet because you don't have yeah. prophecy in Athens. You know what you can have is knowledge, and Socrates does the best of knowledge. That well, yeah. Can do. Again, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll find. So yeah, his best of knowledge is nothing. 
Exactly. So Socrates gives us you, nothing. You, you realize you're the, we get nothing from Socrates. Imagine yeah. how hideous it would be if that made it in the hut. Yeah. Thought she was, you know, all that. Thought yeah. she was like glamorous. Yeah, but but now the minute you can flight Socrates She's and the maiden in the hut, you missed the whole point of. It. So you, you could say Kierkegaard's wrong. Well, that's why he. But I think that's but why I'll take Kierkegaard's argument over your half-ass arguments I any think day. It's not. It's not Kierkegaard's argument. Why he puts Socrates right before. No. This story You're saying that. let's not hang them separately. Let's hang them together. But he says no. It's better well hang than ill wed. Don't wed these two. The whole thing is don't marry this Craddock with a thought project. That's his whole point of the story. <laughs> so you you can miss the point or say that's be, not really no, his I might, point. I might be. I really I, I do want to get back in the text. Yeah. yeah, that's. I mean, I, maybe he's wrong, uh, but that hit that hit the whole thing. The whole reason he brings up Socrates is say this is great, but it ain't Christian faith. Well, I'll make my step. I'll make myself a step closer <laughs> to learning something here by admitting that I am not the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and then by the way, what what is Kierkegaard doing? He's consistent. What is he's writing this whole thing to get you, the reader, to recollect Christian faith? Because he's Kierkegaard's got nothing to teach you. He's just saying if you understand the Christian faith, you understand it's not Socratic, right? And it's not Socratic even on the terms of lover and beloved. The love story of uh, of the Bible is not the love story of Socrates and Alcibiades. Totally different love, different relation of a lover and beloved. Everything's very, very different. So you've got to see the difference to grasp that they're two different love stories. That's why he mentions all these love things from Socrates. Mentions on Symposiums, Alcibiades. He says, yeah, that's, that's Socratic, but it ain't the love story of the Bible. The difference of the love stories being that uh, Jesus is an actual teacher. There's something there to teach, uh, like humanity, whereas Socrates is more like the midwife. There's nothing right. actually there. He's yeah. just bringing out the perfect. Yeah, and, and Jesus gives you the thing he's teaching. So he gives you the baby. So he... He, he begats, as he says early on. Christ begats. He brings you back from the dead. He, he gives you a second birth. Baptism is the mother's womb breaking. He's the womb that you're coming from. He grace the womb. Uh, Socrates does not beget. Only you can beget. you the learner. And so you have the baby within you. So right there you have a qualitative difference. You either have the baby or you don't. In the Christian story, you don't have the baby, but you can have it as a gift. He can bring the baby back from the dead. You had the baby, you lost it. That's called original sin. But now for you to have a baby to be born, you have to, he's got to give you that baby. But the baby still, you, you still have the baby potentially. You're still capable of the no, baby. No, 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 that's, that's, you don't have the potential baby. That's why your K-Pax University in the Christian tradition is that. Yeah, if you have the baby, you didn't really sin. Well, you lost the baby. Well, if you lost the baby, again, I can lose my sight because my eyes are closed, yeah. but I can now see. So I didn't really lose my eyesight. Well, that's not... But if you put my eyes close. out, I really lost my eyes. And I can strain all I want. I won't be able to see a thing. Yeah. That's, that's losing the baby. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I agree. But shutting your eyes is not losing the baby. That's just... Yeah, that's just, Socratic. You, totally you forgot the baby. But, oh, well, my, I just got open my eyes. I can see. Well, that's Socratic. Yeah, but it turns out not even Socrates can open his eyes to see. He doesn't even claim that. That's why he, he still oh, no, yeah, maintains he his own ignorance, yeah, yeah. which is a big move. No, he can open his eyes. He's got the condition to know everything. And then when he knows everything, he says, I don't, turns out I don't know anything. Turns out I'm blind. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say he doesn't know anything. He knows he doesn't know. That's right. But he knows that. That 
that's what makes him so special. Well, that's knowledge, <laughs> which means he has the capacity to know that. He has the condition to know he doesn't know things. But he's, that's that's called, he's got one up on everybody else. Yeah. Nobody else seems to have that condition. No, everybody does. And if you ask a question, you know, I don't know. That's why I'm wondering about it. They don't know it. No, whenever you ask a question, the slave boy knows he doesn't know it. Yeah, but, well, no, he, the slave boy has to know Greek. That's the first thing he asks the slave boy. Anyway. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more of that, please visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2020, the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved.